Are you still without understanding? Or better yet, as the NIV has it, are you still so dull? It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. This passage is not where we get our images of Jesus that end up on magnets and paintings and in Christian bookstores. There's quite a few people here that have spent time preaching in different contexts, and so you might be familiar with the experience of looking ahead at a lectionary and noticing that there's some challenging passages there that sometimes, as a preacher, would be better off avoided, or sometimes they're just the right ones to be able to have a little fun with, to think creatively, to be challenged, to, to grow, and to invite a congregation and oneself into imagination and wonder. This one felt more like that when I read it several weeks ago. So what is going on here? Imagination. Imagination is a tool that can be used for biblical interpretation. And it has a strong tradition, especially within Jewish faith. And we can learn a lot from Jewish methods of biblical interpretation since most of our scripture we inherited from that community. I invite us to engage this morning this passage, these passages, with a sense of imagination, trusting that the Holy Spirit can guide us as we imagine and that we as a community can discern and understand what God might want to say to us through this passage. So, what is going on with Jesus here? As I imagined, I imagined Jesus being like me in certain ways. In my experience, there are times when I don't show up as my best self. Megan, at least, and maybe some others in the congregation can vouch for that. I do work with some of you as well. Sometimes I have an achy back or I'm really congested. I've had a difficult week at work or in other aspects of life. Sometimes I feel like financial pressures are really strong. Sometimes I don't get enough sleep. Often enough, I feel pretty stressed out. And in many of these moments, I end up showing up in relationship with the people around me in ways that I wish I had not. And as I read this passage, I wondered, could that be true of Jesus as well? What if Jesus gets tired sometimes? Tired of things like, shortly before this story, multiplying food to feed thousands, traveling day after day after day. I mean, when I go on vacation, and that's for fun, I look forward to laying in my own bed afterwards. He never does that. He's an itinerant preacher. Sometimes would he like to have some stability? Does Jesus ever get tired of crowds pressing in around him? Occasionally we do hear about him going off for solitude, for prayer. And often it doesn't work because he gets pursued by the crowds who want healings and miracles and teaching. What if Jesus was an introvert? Surely he dealt with physical exhaustion 
And we know from this passage and others that enemies are closing in around him. There are those who are at odds with him, with his teaching, with the way he's leading, the things that his disciples are doing. Challenges from within his own community and challenges from the ruling power. Could this be possible? Does imagining Jesus like this threaten Jesus' divinity? Threaten Jesus' perfection? Or are we, do we believe, as the Christian faith has generally taught over history, that Jesus was fully God and fully human, like you and like me? Well, what would it mean for Jesus to be fully human? If, in fact, Jesus wasn't at his best in the midst of this story, might that mean that this is someone that I can actually relate to, that I can learn from, that he really does know my struggles? Imagine what it would mean if in this story we encounter a very human Jesus, still very much God, but also as human as you or me. In this passage, this human Jesus gets reminded by the disciples of a conflict and dissension within his religious community. Do you know that the Pharisees took offense at what you said? Essentially, they're saying, once again, you've ticked off the leaders of the organized religious community. They've got it out for you again. And we get Jesus, I'm imagining, a little bit exasperated with the disciples who, despite years of following him and being around all of his teachings, still miss some of these key pieces that he's trying to communicate, that he's trying to impart. Are you still without understanding? Or again, are you still so dull? And, of course, it's Peter, again, as is often the case, the usual suspect on not quite getting it and speaking up on behalf of the group. Might Jesus be tired, like really physically exhausted, when someone, one more person, asks for healing? I recall another story, a story where Jesus is pressed in within a crowd, and a woman touches his cloak, And he stops, noting that something has happened. And he says there, I know power has gone out from me. This would suggest that something is happening that drains Jesus in a very real human way. And again, those of you who have preached know preaching. Those of you who are teachers and are gearing up to teach know that teaching, this is tiring. Jesus The human, like me, gets tired. And all of us have had the experience of supporting people we love emotionally, physically, through hard things. And that support, as much as we want to offer it and and choose to offer it, can be exhausting. And what does Jesus do day in and day out but offer that emotional, physical, and spiritual support to not only his disciples but all of those who come to him? I mean, maybe this is not what's going on for Jesus, but maybe it is. And engaging in this empathetic exercise can be helpful in considering what might be going on in this passage and what we might be able to take from it. To gain some context on this encounter with this Canaanite woman where Jesus responds in a way that I'm honestly uncomfortable with. 
a way that like doesn't fit with my understanding of Jesus. So what do we find in this encounter? I'd like to suggest that we find audacity and faith in the life and the interaction of this Canaanite woman, an unnamed Canaanite woman. This is an outsider, someone who's marginalized. As Elisa has already described so well, women in that context did not have anything close to the same rights and recognitions and influence as men. May that continue to change and not be the case at all. She's from a different ethnic group from Jesus, from the disciples. She's from a different religion, a different background. And even within her own community, she almost certainly is marginalized from others because of whatever her daughter is dealing with. This thing that is labeled in scripture as demon possession. That in that context, whatever it was, if it was a mental or a physical condition that was manifest, whatever was happening that the community around her saw, it would have been threatening and scary and would have almost certainly kept this woman and her family on the outside of their society. And so what happens in this encounter with Jesus? She ends up going toe-to-toe in a theological discussion with Jesus Christ. Just takes him on, has, has a very direct and frank conversation. Imagine again, is she afraid as she goes into this? Is she desperate? Almost certainly. It seems surely she knows Jesus' reputation. Why else should we come, would she come to him like this? Is this a risk for her as a Canaanite to approach him, as a woman to approach him? What lines of acceptable behavior is she crossing in this context? I wonder if she knows something more about who Jesus is and his posture, his theological position, the way that he has approached time and time again those who like her who are on the margins who are rejected by their society. Has that word maybe made it to her? And that's why she approaches him so boldly? Let's imagine this, this interaction, sort of like a screenplay. We've got the Canaanite woman, the other, the marginalized, likely viewed with suspicion within her own community, somebody who should not be relating to Jesus. And she comes out, from wherever, I don't know where she was, but she comes out, it says, and she is shouting, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. And what do we find Jesus doing? He ignores her. We read that he does not answer her at all. And in response to this disruption to whatever Jesus and the disciples are in the midst of doing, the disciples come to Jesus and urge him, send her away. Because she keeps shouting after us. Which makes me think this was not a like, she shouted this line once and stopped. She apparently is pursuing them and shouting, crying out. This, this send, them away, send, send her away motif, it shows up again and again with Jesus and the disciples. Like, if the children want to gather around Jesus, or somebody wants to be healed, send them away. Or, 
a multitude of hungry people is there and it's getting close to dinner time. Send them away so they can get food. Jesus seems not to be threatened in the same way as the disciples. And he finally responds, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Despite the disciples' protests, the woman becomes even more brazen. She approaches Jesus and she kneels before him. I imagine she is pleading at this point. She's been shouting. She is pleading, Lord, help me, as she kneels before him. And here's this response from Jesus. It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And I imagine without missing a beat, this woman says, yes, Lord. Yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Now, we just read this as straight dialogue, but what if in this moment there is a pause and Jesus is silent? Does he stop up short? Is he, is he continuing to walk or has he stopped with her kneeling in front of him? What if he takes a moment and when he responds, his tone is actually one of surprise? as if the audacity, or touche. Good point. And he responds with an exclamation, and I imagine a warm and ecstatic expression. Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And we read that in that moment, Her daughter was healed. Let's take a step back in the life of Jesus. In the Gospel according to Luke, we read that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and people. Or in another translation, Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. In this moment in Luke's narrative at the beginning of Luke, we get a rather abrupt jump from Jesus' childhood, a 12-year-old Jesus, to almost two decades in the future, from a precocious and curious little 12-year-old Jewish boy to a mature man who is about to start a public itinerant preaching and healing ministry. So here's my question. As we think of Jesus growing and maturing and learning, And I I think we often accept that about those early years. Was Jesus fully formed the moment that John baptized him? Was he done all of his learning? Again, accepting his full divinity, but also acknowledging that he's just as human as you or me. Had he become everything already that he was meant to be? Or was he still as fully human as on the day that he was born? And did he, like every other human, did he learn and grow and change up until the day that he died? Was Jesus, like me or you, shaped by the encounters that he had with the people that crossed his path each day? 
So in this story this morning, as he encounters this Canaanite woman, could it be that this woman might have taught Jesus something? Could he have been moved so much by this encounter that his own heart was changed in some way? Could he have experienced a mindset shift as a result of his encounter, his conversation with this unnamed Canaanite woman? Did she impact and shape the movement that emerges from Jesus and his followers? It's interesting that in this passage that we heard this morning, this encounter comes right after an extended conversation about what defiles a person. What might it mean that that is paired together here as we read it? That a Canaanite woman with a demon-possessed daughter has the audacity to approach Jesus and to engage him in a theological discourse, a theological challenge. This is not insignificant, for sure, to a Jewish audience who would be reading this story. Who she is and what she is is essential to that encounter. They would have read her as a Canaanite woman who is unclean, unable to enter the presence of God, with the wrong ethnic background, the wrong worship practices, and someone who should not be in the center of town because there's a a real issue going on in her family that's threatening to the community. But instead of being rejected by Jesus, ultimately she is accepted and brought in. She draws close to God and receives healing in God's presence because of what is in her heart, not her externals. And as Jesus teaches prior to this story, what comes out of her mouth reflects what is in her heart. And what is to be found there? A desperate hope that maybe this itinerant preacher, this healer, might bring wholeness to her daughter and to their family. What do we find in her heart? We find belief in Jesus. Perhaps Matthew retrospectively places these two stories together because they served as a pivotal moment in the life and the teaching of Jesus, in the understanding of the disciples of who their community was, and in the formation of the church. This story connects for me to another one that we heard this morning. Reminds me of one of my favorite biblical characters, Hagar. And thanks to Elisa for giving context that I wasn't even going to give. Brilliant. She's another outsider, central to the biblical story. And she is held up by many marginalized communities still as an exemplar, often inspiring others who are marginalized. She's central to a book by Dolores Williams, Sisters in the Wilderness, a book that is uh, seminal in in womanist theology, uh, a theology of, of black women. And she writes, even today, most of Hagar's situation is congruent with many African American women's predicament of poverty, sexual and economic exploitation, surrogacy, domestic violence, homelessness, rape, motherhood, single parenting, ethnicity, and meetings with God. In this passage this morning, this, this moment where Hagar is found in the wilderness, desperate after the birth of her son, near death, both of them, 
where God encounters her and she encounters God, Hagar, as Elisa mentioned, is the only person in scripture to name God. And in the biblical story, that is quite audacious when it is God who over and over again gives God's own name to God's people. El Roy, you are the God who sees. You are the God of seeing. You are the God who sees me. This is audacity and faith. Faith that is passed down and we receive from Hagar. And both the Canaanite woman and Hagar fit in a biblical story arc where God is reaching out for all people, drawing all people to God's self. In line with Abraham, or Abram in this particular narrative, all families of the earth shall be blessed through you. Or in John 12, as Jesus is leading up to his death and is speaking about it, he says, I will draw all people, or a different interpretation, all things to myself. Or as Paul writes in Romans 5, comparing Adam, Adam and Eve, to the new Adam, Jesus, that in one, all of us have sinned. But in Jesus, the abundance of grace and the gift of righteous, righteousness reign in life for all through this one man. Or also in Galatians 3, where he talks about all of us being brought in through Christ, that there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, no male or female, for all are in Christ Jesus. And all of us are part of Abraham's offspring, heirs of the promise that God made to Abraham. We see in a controversy in the early church in the New Testament, the question of whether there's room for Gentiles or what do the Gentiles have to do to become part of the church, of this movement that is following Jesus. How do outsiders get included? Well, over and over again, we see that they get included because God is at work in their lives. Hagar is the one that names God. Rahab, a prostitute, is the one that becomes an ally for the people of God, the people of Israel. Ruth, a Moabite immigrant, is listed in the genealogy of Jesus. A Samaritan woman at a well becomes the, one of the first evangelists, someone who goes and spreads the good news of Jesus to her community. So what does all of this mean for us? I believe it calls us to be attentive to where God is at work. There's a passage that has stuck with me from a book, The Next Christendom, by Philip Jenkins, where he's writing about the changing nature of the global church. And in that book he writes, if we want to visualize a typical contemporary Christian, we should think of a woman living in a village in Nigeria or in a Brazilian favela as Kenyan scholar John Beatty has observed, the centers of the church's universality are no longer in Geneva or Rome, Athens, Paris, London, New York, but Kinshasa, Buenos Aires, Addis Ababa, and Manila. Whatever Europeans or North Americans may believe, Christianity is doing very well indeed in the global south, not just surviving, but expanding in the places that were and are in many ways still on the margins globally. Krista Tippett has a great podcast on being 
And in one of her podcasts, she interviews Walter Brueggemann, who is known for his work, theological and biblical work, on the prophets. And in his description of the prophets, I hear a description of Hagar and this Canaanite woman who are not categorized necessarily biblically as prophets, but fit what he sees as the biblical prophet. He says they are completely uncredentialed and without pedigree. They just rise up in the landscape. They imagine their contemporary world differently according to that old tradition. It's tradition and it's imagination. They are moved the way every good poet is moved to have to describe the world differently according to the gifts of their insight. In their own time and in every time since, the people that control the power structure do not know what to make of them, so they characteristically try to silence them. What power people always discover is that they cannot finally silence poets. They just keep coming at you in threatening and transformative ways. It makes me think of this Canaanite woman interaction with Jesus. They just keep coming at you in threatening and transformative ways. It seems that this paragraph describes her so well, imagining a different world, challenging Jesus' response, holding him, Jesus, to his own example and teachings, to the tradition that they find themselves with, actually his tradition that she is merging into where it is woven into a tapestry that includes so many threads that help to make up that pattern that we're not part of that community, who were not the insiders, but were the most marginalized in their time and in their place. And in this encounter, I believe, we see her teaching the disciples that it is indeed, as Jesus has said, what is in the heart that makes one clean or unclean, not exterior factors, not what they eat or don't eat. So what might this mean for us today? God's truth is likely to be revealed where we least expect it. And for those who have been marginalized, and for each of us here, I believe we're well aware if that is us. It's easy to know to have experienced that marginalization. And if you are one who has been marginalized, know that God is closer to you than society or religion has told you. You have truth to teach all of us, like Hagar or the Canaanite woman. We need to know what you see when you look at the world and what you understand about God. And for those of us who live with privilege, and there are many privileges that we can have, we would do well to pay attention, to see where God is at work, where God's truth is to be understood, and how should things be. Ask a marginalized person, because they likely have a clearer picture of how things should be, of where the world, where society and communities fall short of shalom, this full peace, well-being, rightness in the world, for what it looks like to go from where we are now to where things would be right and whole. Where everyone has enough. Food, safety, shelter, love. Where war no longer consumes people, resources, the beauty around us. 
where race no longer determines a person's destiny, outcome, inclusion, community, opportunity. Where the earth experiences our care rather than our destruction. Where every person is loved by everyone around them in the deep and profound way that God loves every person. Who are the prophets? Those without credential and pedigree who are speaking to us today. What voices are you hearing that are speaking truth? What lessons have you learned that you will share with us as a community? From others that you're hearing from or from your own experience? Where have you seen God at work? May we each have the audacity to be as intimate with God as Hagar is in naming God, as the Canaanite woman is in her boldness in approaching Jesus. And may we have the faith of Hagar that knows that God sees even me, and the faith of the Canaanite woman who is confident that God will show up and chooses to keep pressing in until that happens. Amen.